Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. What can gemstones tell us about cultures? Making an impression, the art of ancient engraved gemstones, is an exhibition on view at Emory's Carlos Museum. We'll learn about these small ancient artworks and the people who interacted with them, from the enslaved miners who quarried the stones to the engravers who carved them, the individuals who wore them, and the viewers impressed by their luster. Gemstones as a window into the classical world, coming up later this hour. First, Elevate is an annual public arts program of the City of Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. This year's events are running through October 9th at several venues around town. Camille Russell Love is the executive director of the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. She joins us now with the poet, author, and longtime Spelman College professor Opal Moore. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Lois. Please tell us what are the origins of Elevate? Well, Elevate started when we had some surplus funding that was the result of our Percent for Art program. The Percent for Art program states that anytime the city builds a building, then a certain percentage, one and a half percent of eligible construction funds have to be used for art. Well, in this case, the program didn't use it for art and we had the money left over and we said, what can we do with it? And we started Elevate. And so that was 12 years ago. Elevate has moved around the city. The intention of Elevate is to enliven an area that normally doesn't have art so that the residents can reimagine what their community would be like if art were there with the hopes that it would then engage in art activities on a regular basis. And how did you decide on open spaces as this year's theme? Well, last year, 
we were able to get access to a million dollars in funding from the American Rescue Fund. And we spent $650,000 of it last year, and we had 350,000 left for this year. One of the requirements as we use the money, it asks us to have activities that get people to come out. And so as we looked at the Elevate possibilities for this year, we said, well, let's just get people out in open spaces, uptown, midtown, and downtown, and all around town. So Elevate, where previously it had been held in just a community, this year it's going to be all over town. Mm. And I was looking on your website as part of open spaces. You elaborate on use of public places. And Opal, I, I especially thought about how wonderful in recent years the rise of poetry slams and sort of pop-up poetry events. What are your thoughts about a time when other art forms struggle? What do you think about the state of poetry today? Well, I would say, given my long relationship with poetry and with storytelling, I'd say that we're in a great position right now. And in part, it is because of the rise of the Poetry Slam, because the Poetry Slam did what I think some poets intended to do, in, in fact, tried to do earlier, and that is to disassociate poetry as something exclusively belonging in the academic space. So uh, I think that the Slam poets did you know, heavy lifting in terms of making poetry feel like it belongs to everyone, it brought it out of those exclusive spaces and as Camille has pointed out, put it out in the open. And I think that over the last 20 or so years, people have begun to really relate to poetry, perhaps first through the slam poets, perhaps first through the public poets, and then I think to publishing and to all of the things with which we're more familiar. I'm of an age where that same effort occurred during the Black arts movement across the country where Gwendolyn Brooks, people like Gwendolyn Brooks and Haki Matabudi said, we're taking poetry to the pub, we're taking it to the speakeasy. You know, we do not think that poetry only belongs in these specialized and somewhat exclusive spaces. So this is a long time growing. And I think now poetry is far more diverse and far more available, I think, on, on various what we refer to now as platforms. So you can find poetry everywhere. And then I do want to mention the rise of really powerful and supportive poetry organizations, organizations like Cave Canem, organizations like the Furious Flower Poetry Center. I could list many others, but I would say that there's also been a rise in organizing around making poetry available to, to all spaces, to all geographies, and to all of the different audiences that poetry moves. Indeed, what you're speaking to is really a democratization of poetry, which 
is fantastic because there's no question that it belongs within an academic realm. But making the art form a people's art form not only enriches others' lives, but enhances the growth within the academy. I would think it kind of bubbles up. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. Everything around poetry has been transformed. I, I would certainly, I would sign on to that, absolutely. And certainly uh, returning poetry to the people, we should remember that poetry started with the traveling poet, with the, the lyre player and the poem. It started with, I think, storytelling in the way that storytelling was, was and remains seated in the intimate community. So the importance of telling stories has returned or, or been affirmed, I should say. And also it has brought a sense of, of study and intentionality to the poetry. So, and I think that's what you may be meaning about how the public forums have also influenced academe. That's absolutely correct. Okay, Opal, this is, this is not the academy, but I thought Muhammad Ali was marvelous in the way he would break into poetry. What do you think? I would say that Muhammad Ali was a, uh, an A student in African-American cultural discourse. His uh, rhymes and uh, wit uh, are what used to be referred to in the community as mother wit. And I think that every community has an, an oral tradition that is full of wit and the use of put downs and, and a back and forth. And so that verbal combat is very deeply ingrained in our more traditional oral cultures. Uh, one hopes that poetry will prevent us from forgetting about these early ways that uh, rhyme and play belonged in our everyday lives. Thank you for remembering Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I think of him often. He was a great exemplar. <laughs> oh. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with poet Opal Moore and Camille Russell Love, the executive director of the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. We've been discussing this year's Elevate Arts Festival. You mentioned Furious Flower among your distinguished works with that organization, African-American poetry from the Black Arts Movement to the present, Eulogy for Sister, The Taste of Life, going on. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. I'm a great admirer of your work. Thank you. Is it possible to tell us about your process or artistic approach to creating poetry? I would say that my approach is almost like a form of meditation. 
Whereas many people will say that they, they love the active and engaged and, and maybe even a space that's kind of noisy, I tend to work, and, and perhaps it even appears in the tonality of, of certain poems, like Eulogy for Sister, a way of trying to listen to our interior. And I think that that poem is a great example of that. Here is a speaker really sort of stepping into the interior, thinking about the passing of a woman and an auntie, but also thinking about the ways that death is circumscribed. It's not just something that happens to you and it's not just something that we suffer. It's also something that demands that we reconnect with our interior landscapes. I would say that looking for the interior landscape is a part of my process, trying to figure out what hasn't been understood well, or even trying to step into those ways that we perhaps don't even care to look at the more difficult aspects of our, of our lives and our living. I'm so happy you called the name of that poem. I, oh, okay. <laughs> I, that's such a, a, such a great example of the, the place where I think my work sits. Thank you for asking that. That's a great question. Well, it's beautiful work. And you mentioned the University of Iowa. Talk about a prestigious degree. Were you there around the time that the poet Rita Dove was in Iowa? No, I was not. I wish. I was in Iowa in the workshop between 80 and 81. And I was coming out of the visual arts program. My visual arts degree actually overlaps with my uh, creative writing degree because I, I have always thought of the visual arts and language arts as being intimately connected and even necessary for one another. And I do find that written, uh, certain kinds of written work is so very visual and certain kinds of visual work is highly narrative. So at the time I was really trying to do both. And um, that uh, experience was you know, it's one that I almost wish could have been moved to a different moment in my life, because when I walked into the University of Iowa, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I think that now when young writers go into these programs, they're much more sophisticated. They're much smarter about what they can make happen during those uh, years that they're there. Well, do not sell yourself short <laughs> and your <laughs> emphasis on the relationship or interrelationship between visual art and poetry will be a wonderful segue to the Elevate event. But before we go there, I wondered with your role as a short story writer, how one feeds the other. Or are they separate? I was just thinking that the Academy is very good at categorizing things, but I think that writers often do not make these hard distinctions between one, what we refer to as genre, one genre and the other. 
And so I, my degree is in fiction writing. It is not in poetry, but I started writing as I think many people do by writing bad poems. And I agree with Rita, uh, of course, because she knows that perhaps the only difference between fiction writing and poetry is the intentionality of paring down your words and then forcing words to do more work than they sometimes have to do in fiction. But I will tell you that when I was in fiction workshop, I was often critiqued for not explaining enough, for not telling enough, for not giving more information, because I felt that if you're really reading, you should be able to find those things in the, in the story without having too many things explained. So for me, it's been a balance between what we tell and what we just leave there to be found. And I think Toni Morrison speaks to that. I've actually taken passages of Morrison and lined them as poems because Morrison understood language intimately and powerfully. Uh, she was also a storyteller, but there are certain spaces in Morrison, certain passages that actually operate like very highly crafted poems. And so she's kind of toggling between what the poet does in terms of the spareness and the loading of language with, along with her, her very lyrical way of, of explaining, of carrying us along a storyline. So between Rita Dove, who has moved to a very clean poetry line, to someone like Toni Morrison, who moves back and forth between the very beautiful line, but also the very large and expansive and sort of gangly kind of license that, that uh, fiction writers enjoy. But I would say that for me, it's not a surprise when a poet moves to the essay or to the story. And it doesn't surprise me when the storyteller will lay down a very well-crafted set of poems. It's just a matter of how you decide you want to use a form to tell a particular kind of story or to create a particular kind of experience. As part of Elevate this year, you will moderate a talk with a panel of distinguished poets. What topics will be addressed in that discussion? Yes. Color in the Body will not be a panel. It's actually a group of five poets that I invited to address in poetry the work of Deanna Serlin and her exhibition, which is up already, Wavelength. And again, uh, this is something that I think belongs in the work of poetry and in fact does sit there as a kind of form. The, the ekphrastic is, the, is a name for a form that takes as its subject or its inspiration a visual artwork. And so the conversation, uh, when we're using the word conversation, we're actually talking about the conversation between the poet and the visual artist. Now, I have to admit, I did not think of this, but it would be lovely to do something that would give the poet space 
to talk about their process. They're actually engaged in that process now. They, those who are local have attended the exhibition at Chastain Art Center and Gallery. And this Saturday, there is an art talk. And this will again allow people to come back to the gallery more than once, to come back to the, to the exhibition more than once. And the, the poets are coming back to the exhibition more than once. And they have the opportunity to speak with the artists as a part of their process. So I love that you took the conversation for a panel, but actually the conversation is happening right now between the poets and uh, Deanna Serlin, the artist. This poetry uh, will be archived on the art section. And again, to speak about uh, the democratization of access, uh, we've learned a lot about the way that art can in fact shine online. And so we will be taking this conversation online and it can be found there. The poets will be providing us with materials to, to, rep, you know, to represent the work that they did for this conversation with the artist, Deanna Serlin. Wonderful. Camille, you have championed the arts for decades and are responsible for adding so much to the cultural landscape of Atlanta that it would take quite a long time, longer than this program, to mention all that you have achieved. 31 Days of Jazz comes to mind. That's one of my favorites. Are you also an artist yourself? I don't think I have ever asked you that. No, I am an art patron. I just love and respect what artists contribute to the quality of our lives. And because of that, I think that informs my passion to make sure that Atlanta is a, an open space for the experience of receiving art. Uh, you use the word democratization of art. And I, I love that because I really feel that art should be accessible to everyone. And so what has informed my work over the 24 years <laughs> that I have been with the city is to just push the the envelope of, of equal access to the arts, uh, put that on the table. Because what we want is for every Atlantan to have a high quality of life. And the arts are part of that. And we want every Atlantan to feel like art is accessible to them and it's for them. And so through the 31 Days of Jazz and the Atlanta Jazz Festival and Elevate and our cultural experience project, our public art program, all of those programs are for open access to enjoying art. And the quality of, of what we provide, I think is quite evident with what Opal's doing with her project during Elevate. We're using Elevate as a way to elevate the quality of, of art that um, our citizens and our visitors have a opportunity to access and appreciate. And that is what fuels me. <laughs> that is what uh, makes me tick and keeps me working, honestly, Lois. Well, 
I know I speak for many Atlantans when I say thank you for what keeps you working because it has enhanced our lives in so many ways. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, I don't do the work for accolades. <laughs> I do it because it's necessary. And when I came into this job, I didn't feel like that was part of the conversation. You know, I thought that the arts were still elite and that it felt like access to art was limited. And so this is what I have attempted to do during my tenure. Well, you have succeeded, and I thank you for it. I would just like to say that being an art patron doesn't mean that you pick up a paintbrush, but it does mean that you are really deeply engaged in the ways that artists want their art to be seen. And I, I, I do want to add my thanks to the work that Camille uh, has done and is doing for arts in Atlanta. And I also want to say, Lois, you know how highly regarded your show is because it is a place where people actually get to talk about the art, not the you know awards and not the sort of public accolade, but the art itself. And you make a space for that. So thank you for your contribution as well. It really is a privilege. Opal Moore poet, professor, and short story writer, and Camille Russell Love, the executive director of the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. This year's Elevate Free Public Arts Festival continues around the city through October 9th. Opal Moore's poetry event, Color and the Body, is this Saturday at the Chastain Arts Center. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. Today, featuring painter Paula Brett, Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, 
where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Paula Brett and I'm a visual artist. I make colorful gestural abstract paintings that evoke wonder and delight. I inherited the art gene from my father who was also an artist, but it wasn't until college where I finally dipped my toes into formal study. Switching majors from science to art after determining that five more years of physics classes was not going to be in my future. I graduated from UGA with a degree in art education and then went on to get a master of fine arts from Columbia College, Chicago. I'm really motivated and inspired by the process of making a painting itself. The actual act of simply making a mark on paper or canvas is something primal and wonderful each time it happens. Colors blending, brushes moving, and watching a composition come together is absolutely thrilling to me. I want my viewer to feel like they're walking into an imaginary, fantastical place that takes them places they've never been. Like you're in a world of twisting and twirling brushstrokes and wild colors. Each painting is a, like a totally different environment. Some are all about big shapes and colors. You bounce from like a light pink shape and fall into a deep blue blob and then run up a staircase of little black marks and then down a mint green slide. <laughs> in another, you're in a world of like layered luminescent light that feels like you just opened a door to a magical realm. It's like an abstracted version of aura beams bursting from some beautiful cosmic light source. And in the next painting, you're underwater swimming with the most gorgeous undulating koi fish in a pond full of lush green turquoises looking up at the refracted light from under the water. I want my paintings to transport you into worlds that are a delightful mix of the beautiful world we see and the worlds we can only imagine. My process is really very intuitive. I usually start with big, bold marks and then let those lead me to the next and the next and the next. Working fast and energetic is really what I like the most, but having space all through the work for different kinds of emotions, some calm and restful areas are good too. I grew up in Atlanta and then left for about 18 years, moving around the country and abroad in different cities, but ultimately decided to come back. Atlanta has all of the things I want to raise my kids with a great cultural art scene, beautiful natural surroundings, and the ability to discover whatever they want to explore. Places I love to see art in Atlanta are, of course, the High Museum, the Atlanta Contemporary, and so many galleries from those around Marietta Square to Miami Circle and the West Side. Listeners can see my work in person at my studio gallery in Roswell, where I work and teach classes, and online at my website. Just Google Paula Brett and you'll find me. Abstract artist Paula Brett and our series of visual artists in their own words. Speaking of the arts, more information about Brett's work is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, we'll learn that all that glitters isn't gold, but does tell us a lot about classical Greece and Rome in the Carlos Museum exhibition, Making an Impression, the Art and Craft of Ancient Engraved Gemstones. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This 
is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Beyond their ornamental beauty, engraved gems allow us to examine different aspects of life in ancient Greece and Rome. A new exhibition at the Carlos Museum explores the history and functionality of gemstones in classical antiquity. Making an impression, the art and craft of ancient engraved gemstones is on view at the Carlos through November 27th. Joining me now via Zoom, Dr. Ruth Allen, curator of Greek and Roman art, and the new director of the Carlos Museum, Dr. Henry Kim. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. These objects are tiny. Would you explain how the Greeks and Romans carved such intricate designs into these small gemstones? This is something that uh, has fascinated me since I started studying engraved gems nearly 10 years ago, and is something that actually fascinated ancient viewers as well. The seemingly miraculous skill of the engraver to fit impossible detail into the surface of a gemstone, often uh, smaller than half an inch, sometimes even only a quarter of an inch in, in size. The process of engraving these gems, it involved a, a bow-driven, hand-turned drill made from wood with metal drill bits of, of different shapes, some pointed, some cone-shaped, some circular. And the movement of the bow, which was the string of which was wrapped around the drill, could make a, a continuously turning drill to work these gems. The crucial ingredients in the process was what we call emery powder, what the ancients knew as Naxos stone, um, a type of corundum close to diamond that was sourced on the island of Naxos in the Mediterranean Sea. And when ground into a, a fine powder and mixed with olive oil, this forms the, the abrasive, um, which is really what allowed the drill to, to carve these stones that were sourced from uh, across the, the known world and that ranged in their hardness, so from uh, emerald through to gunnet and cornelian. And really that was the process. And we were very lucky in this exhibition to work with a contemporary engraver who has created a really wonderful video demonstrating the ancient technique um, and the ancient tools that were used. Did the artists and, and craftspeople carving these gemstones have our equivalent of a magnifying glass? This is a great question, and one that there's a fair amount of debate around. We do know that the magnifying potential of curved glass, of curved quartz, was understood in the ancient world. But what we don't have is the textual evidence or the archaeological evidence to, to confirm that this was used, um, although it seems possible. Other theories that are debated include that these craftsmen were naturally myopic and therefore were sort of genetically predisposed to this kind of uh, minute 
precise work. And we do know that the trade, the gem engraving trade, could be a, a family endeavor. There's an artist called Dioscorides, who we know uh, because he both signed his work and he's discussed in uh, Roman literature. He was an engraver and all three of his sons were engravers. So the possibility of there being this kind of genetic predisposition that was passed from generation to generation is also possible, but we don't know for sure. Oh, that's so interesting, thinking about what you described with the myopia, how being nearsighted was a gift in this instance. I remember once hearing an ophthalmologist speak about Monet and said that final period with some of the most gorgeous diffusion of color and images was aided or maybe even made possible because of the artist's severe cataracts. Would this be comparable? I think so. And I think that's such a wonderful comparison because so often I think when we talk about ancient art, we sort of forget about the craftsmen behind these objects. You know, we're so familiar in so many ways with, with the iconography of, of classical art. And I think to remember that there's a sort of, uh, there's a person behind these objects and there's a sort of, you know, a genetic predisposition or a, an inclination or a preference that's determining the ways in which these objects are being produced and how they look, I think brings them to life, kind of reminds us that, that these were people operating in ways that craftsmen perhaps might operate today. So you mentioned the size of some of these gems, even smaller than a half inch. At the museum, you provide magnifying glasses, easy, lightweight pieces for visitors to use. Do you encourage people to bring their own as well? Sure, absolutely. Something that was very important to me in, in thinking about how to present this material was to allow visitors to both see the images that are engraved on these tiny, tiny stones, which often are incredibly hard to look at and really depend on the angle at which the light is falling on the stone, but also to really showcase the, the material delights of these objects. You know, they were selected in antiquity for their amazing colour, for their translucence, for the polish that could be achieved on their surface. And again, this is something that ancient poets talk at length about, both the kind of wondrousness of the image, but really the, the uh, amazing qualities of, of the stone. And so we wanted to display them and light them uh, in a way that brought them as close to our viewer as possible. So you'll notice that they're, they're behind glass, but they're about an inch away from the viewer if you get up close to, to the glass. And yes, bring a magnifying glass. We, we've provided lenses in the galleries. We also have photographs available on iPads and on QR codes that can be expanded and zoomed in on so you can really get close to those details at the same time as, as, as appreciating the, the stone itself. <laughs> How do the Greek carvings differ from the Romans? In some ways, they don't. Often when, when looking at 
distinguishing between Greek and Roman, you're very much looking at, at stylistic differences. So ways of representing the body. Classical periods, Greek art, we tend to think of as being quite austere. When we get to the Roman period, the Romans were obsessed with arts that looked Greek. So they're actually using the same stylistic representation as um, as art produced in much earlier centuries. But we see a much wider proliferation of gems in the Roman periods. More are being produced with different kinds of images on them. And so it's really in terms of the content that we can see a difference. And this may be objects that are carved with images to do with contemporary politics, be that the emperor of the moment or current world events as the Roman Empire was expanding. Or this might have to do with trends in philosophy or trends in sort of elite culture. The Romans were very, uh, elite Romans were very interested in sort of demonstrating their status by the adoption of a lifestyle which they called otium, um, which we might translate as sort of leisured and luxurious time away from work and there are certain sets of images that we find on gemstones speak to this idea you might live a, a life of otium by reading philosophy or by having a nice meal with your friends for example images of the god Dionysus who was connected with luxury and with wine as we perhaps know him best these are very popular on gemstones as this kind of expression of a leisured luxurious lifestyle if you are just tuning in this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with curator Dr. Ruth Allen and Dr. Henry Kim, director of the Carlos Museum and Emery Associate Vice Provost. We've been discussing the Carlos Museum exhibition, Making an Impression, the art and craft of ancient engraved gemstones. Would you describe just a few highlights on display in the exhibition, some of the entire designs? Going back to the idea of the skill of the engraver and the possibility of their having sort of special eyesight, there's one gem that I that I really love that's engraved with the head of a lynx, which, you know, this, a wild cat that the Romans thought had the sharpest eyesight of all mammals. And so here it is on this tiny gem carved in miniature scale, which I think is really sort of playing with the idea of the excellent eyesight that you need to carve gemstones. We have a um, garnet portrait head of a Ptolemaic queen. So this is not a gemstone that would have been mounted for use as a signet, like many of the other gems are uh, in the exhibition. This is a, a three-dimensional portrait that may still have been worn as jewellery. It depicts a, a Ptolemaic queen. So this was the ruling dynasty of Egypt in the third century through the first century BCE. Probably Berenike II, who was a very um, powerful queen who ruled very much under her own autonomy. And it's carved from garnet, which was a stone that was very special to the Ptolemies. Access to garnet sourced in India really was a way of sort of demonstrating the, the breadth and the power of the Ptolemaic kingdom um, and how far its sort of trade connections and influence could reach. And so they used garnet and they used it to depict 
royal portraiture and this became a way of sort of promoting the, the charisma and the iconography of the ruling family and they did this through gemstones they would give these carved stones to officials to visiting dignitaries as a way of sort of yes expanding their power through the visual and we see this on some cameos included in the exhibition as well i didn't realize cameos went back to antiquity i always think of them as sort of renaissance right yeah there's there's some debate about when actually cameos first began to be carved so just to to explain the difference gemstones in the greek and roman period were carved in two ways in one way what we call intaglios the image is cut into the surface of the stone but with cameos the stone is carved in relief so that image stands proud of the of the background it's possible this was uh, an invention of the late Hellenistic period, or maybe the early Roman imperial period. And these are extraordinary objects. Artists would select stones with naturally occurring bands of different color that they would carve through to create often very complex relief images. We have a, a really lovely cameo in the collection that depicts the Empress Faustina, a Roman empress who, who we can identify by her very complicated hairstyle that the artist has managed to, to pick out in, in impossibly tiny detail. She has this amazing bun formed of, of braids that are coiled around uh, the nape of the neck. And the artist has used the colors of the stone to distinguish the flesh of her face from the background of the gem, from her hair, and even the blush on her cheeks is sort of conveyed by very thinly carving away a layer of brown stone. And again, probably an official gift, perhaps given to someone, uh, a close confidant, someone within the inner imperial court, as a way of promoting allegiance, of, of displaying status, your connection to the emperor. So these objects were very powerful symbols. Hmm. Indeed, they give viewers a window into classical antiquity in a very personal way. At the opening of this exhibition, Ruth, you and Henry spoke at length. And Henry, I was also impressed by your comments about the sociological aspects of this exhibition about the people who mined these gemstones and your further comments about the route they took to ancient Greek and Rome and back. Would you talk about that for us now? Well, most certainly. I think that one of the things that we often get caught up into is just thinking about the Greek or Roman worlds as being their own. But what's very important, I think, for all of us to recognize is that the Greek and Roman worlds were connected to the worlds around them. And for as much as we think of them as standalone, outstanding empires and civilizations, uh, they couldn't exist without context and constant contacts with peoples, with materials, and with, with ideas that came from outside of their realms. And I think that this gem exhibition 
is very important because it shows you very clearly that without interconnected trade routes and people traveling from what may be very far distances into the Mediterranean, you wouldn't have many of the works that you see today because you wouldn't have the stones actually present within the Mediterranean. And that's where I think that an exhibition like this can be tremendously useful in showing that cultures are never standalone. They are always connected to one another. And that's an aspect of history that I've always been very interested in. It's something I've worked on in my past museums. And it's something that I think that this museum will try to exemplify in the, into the future. Hmm. When we left the exhibition, I thought about Yo-Yo Ma and when he began the Silk Road Project. And your comments resonated for me with those that mean so much to him. And this idea of how interconnected we are as peoples and the importance of encountering other cultures, it also seems very contemporary particularly during times where some people are nativists and anti-immigration. Would you agree? Oh, I couldn't agree more because, again, I think that when you look at the connections among peoples in the past and in the present, it's a natural part of the human existence and the human condition. And so, you know, a museum like ours, the objects are the starting point. But there are so many other ways in which human expression takes place, whether it's through music, whether it's through performance, it could be through textiles and the way people dress or straight through to food, music, and also literature. And this is where I think that if we really want to get a better understanding of people around us today, look at the past and you'll see all these connections. And it's an incredible synthesis that happens across time. So you have just started your position as the new associate vice provost and executive director of the Carlos Museum. I read that you led many programs and exhibitions that were centered around societal issues, social justice at the core. How are you planning to bring that same inclusive energy to the Carlos? Well, I think the answer to that for me is through listening. And I think what's so important when you look and chart out the course for the programs and exhibitions of a museum, you need to try to understand what the broader community is interested in, uh, not only the people within Emory University, but also Atlanta and also the entire Southeast. And to me, what's crucial is to try to find out what resonates and what's relevant and to find how our programs can actually mix into this. So I think the whole issue about perhaps even immigration, uh, about cultural identity, these are all issues that are big within people's minds today. Look, a museum like the Carlos can actually address this. And so the art in what we do is trying to blend their interests with what we can do as a museum and what resources we can bring to bear 
from other institutions and other collaborators. I want this museum to truly reach out within the community, but also within the professional circles to do something that is a bit more current, relevant, and uh, unique. Dr. Henry Kim, Associate Vice Provost and Director of the Michael C. Carlos Museum, and Dr. Ruth Allen, Curator of Greek and Roman Art, making an impression the art and craft of ancient engraved gemstones is on view at the museum through November 27th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., John Dixon, the artistic director of the vocal ensemble Coro Vocati, joins us to discuss their upcoming concert, Dear World. Plus, pianist Will Ransom details his upcoming performance of Schubert's Trout Quintet hosted by the Georgia Aquarium on October 2nd. If you missed part of today's show, such as our conversation earlier this hour with the poet Opal Moore, you can catch up on our website. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.